Welcome to another episode of the WBT. I'm Adrian Bonnenberger, and I'm joined for this episode by a friend of mine, a special operations pilot, combat veteran, conflict journalist who's covered both Iraq and Ukraine, and uh, a really good writer, Nolan Peterson. Um, He is one of my favorite people writing about war today, not just as a person, but also as a craftsman somebody who really uh, feels what it means to write about war, and and not just about war, but about conflict, the conflict of the human heart. Um, Nolan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Adrian. I appreciate you having me. So you just put out a collection of short fiction, which I is is some of the best stuff that I've read uh, in the last couple of years, in the last few years. Uh, it's got heart. And I've, I've been telling all of my friends about it. It's, it's, it's exciting to see something like this. How long were you working on this? Somebody's been writing nonfiction journalism as my profession now for almost five years. It was a big leap for me to go into fiction. And so I just endlessly would go back and revise and revise. And, you know, some of the suggestions that you gave me when I gave you an early draft, I really took to heart. And so I think it was, it was like, you know, the analogy I use is like, it's like a charcoal drawing, you know, you just, you're always shading in and molding the stories. And, uh, and I, so I think after about a year, I got the stories to where I wanted them to be. Uh, but as I create new things now, new fiction, uh, I've learned so much in the editing process that I, I feel like I've, I've been able to kind of acquire a new skill in the process of writing these fiction stories. People talk about self-editing in, in writing, and how, how long did it take you to develop that skill uh, as a writer? Because you've been writing now for, if, if we include the, the nonfiction, the essays, the reporting, for five or six years? Yeah, about almost six years now. Self-editing, obviously, is it's full of perils because you fall in love with certain things that, that don't resonate to other people. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I... You know, as part of my editing, self-editing education, what I've done is just read an, an insane amount. And I, you know, go through a book every few days, it seems. And by doing that, I, I really pay attention to the way other writers write, particularly writers whose style I really, really admire. Like somebody like Cormac McCarthy, for example. I really enjoy his writing. And so, I, you know, I look at my writing and I can sort of more easily pick out the mistakes the more I read of other people's work. Um, and also the fact that I write a lot, um, allows me to sort of exercise those new skills, right? Like I, it doesn't really do you much good to learn your mistakes if you don't then practice not making those mistakes. Mm, So, mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, writing really is, it's a lifetime, uh, educational process. And I think that for me, I, you know, because writing is not what I originally intended to do with my life. I was a pilot before I was a writer. So really, I've only been seriously thinking about being a professional writer now for six years. And it, it really is a, a constant development. And I've, you know, I've put a lot of put a lot of effort into getting where I am now. And I, you know, I, but I love it, though. It's not work to me. It's, it's pure passion. 
So what are the, you talked about uh, reading a lot of books. I imagine that's both for pleasure and for professional development. Um, uh, double trouble. <laughs> um, so wh who are some of your, apart from Cormac McCarthy, uh, some of the other people that you, you really enjoy reading and learning from? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's obviously the, the go-to cliche, but I have to say, you know, Hemingway was a big influence on me. I, I, you know, I lived in Paris from the age of 22 to 24, right after I graduated from the Air Force Academy. And at that time, I really kind of fell in love with Hemingway's writing and the whole idea of being a writer. Um, John Krakauer's work, Sebastian Younger, and not to name really specific writers, but I, I love stories um, of mountaineers, explorers, like the diaries of Captain Scott from Antarctica. Uh, there's just a real visceral quality to that kind of writing for people who write their memoirs of lives in extraordinary circumstances. Uh, Ernie Pyle, his reporting from World War II. Mm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But yeah, just I like writers who are, who are very honest and who present their material in a very straightforward way. Um, but I think, you know, sort of for me, the sign that I was, that I am developing as a writer is that the book I'm reading at the moment doesn't necessarily translate into the style that I'm writing <laughs> that morning as well. Like, I think when I first huh. started writing fiction, I would see it if I'm reading Hemingway, my writing would sort of start to sound like Hemingway until I'd pick up, uh -huh. you know, an F. Scott Fitzgerald book, and then I would start to write it a little looser, perhaps. And so I think as I've developed my own voice, I have noticed that my, that I am not as influenced by the book that happens to be my bookshelf at that moment. That's really interesting. It's uh, and it's been interesting to to, to watch your progression as uh, as a writer as you get uh, more confident and comfortable. Um, I I personally I I don't quite feel comfortable yet in my own sort of like writing skin, and I think part of that is that I haven't been writing enough um, because, as you say, you know, writing. Writing a lot is really crucial to this, but the the other component that your writing has, which I think is really important, and, and is something that you know you could write all day every day for a year, and if you don't have it, there's no point to it. Um, is is there's 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 like a kind of energy there, and I'm not sure how to quantify that or characterize it, other than you know it's when you're when you're reading when I'm reading one of your stories, it's clear that I'm that 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 it's it's yeah, I, 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 I guess I'm a bad writer because words are eluding me on this, but like, yeah, there's something there. It's, there's like, like, like a seeking or a searching quality uh, and it's not judgmental. It's, uh, I don't know how you do that, but uh, I wish, I wish I could figure that out. Well, I, I appreciate that, especially from, from someone like you whose uh, taste in good writing is one that I, I admire. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if this, is related to your observations, but you know, I think one technique of writing that has really helped me is to write terribly at first. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, and I and I, but I think there's a lot to be said about that. Which is, if you if you want the writing to flow, if you want there to be energy to it, if you want it to have like an almost musical quality to it at times, I think you have to capture just the sort of that. That's that dreamlike state that comes when you're writing well. And I think if you think too much about what you're writing, you, you lose that, that flow. 
And so for me, you know, I, I love, you know, I've got an old typewriter that I use to write, or I just write freehand. Uh, I think, you know, obviously getting off my computer is essential. But I will just, I will just let it go. I'll just lose myself in the writing. And often I'll go back and read what I, what I wrote and realize that most of it's awful. But then, <laughs> but then there are those little pieces that, are, that, I, that I love. And I think that I, I could never plan, I could never plan the best things I've written. They all happened mm. by accident, I have to say. I think there's the idea in my mind that I sit down when I write something, you know, an, an image of the story I want to create. But really writing is, I know this is kind of, you know, getting a little bit uh, metaphysical here or something, but it's, it's almost <laughs> like, uh, it's like dreaming through your fingertips. You know, I think wow. writing comes from the same places as dreams. And I think to write really well, you almost have to shut down the thinking part of your brain and just kind of let it happen. This is a great transition to talking about some of the stories that uh, that are in Snowblind. I'd like to start, if you don't mind, with um, with the architect, and I, I pick this uh, both because I like the story very much, um, uh, also because you have made it free for um, so it is accessible to, to people to read as a kind of uh, hors d'oeuvre if they're. Uh, <laughs> You know, if they're wondering whether or not it's worth the three dollar investment, <laughs> right? An, an amuse bouche, as they say. In right. Yes, yes, that's right. So, yeah, tell me about the architect. Well, I mean, I think you know, my my father is an architect. Uh, obviously, the story is not about him, but uh, I think as I transition from being a pilot to a writer, uh, I look to my dad for advice about the creative process because you know as an architect or a writer you have to sit down at a certain time every day and be creative and that's a really hard thing to do so i i saw so many parallels in my dad's creative process with the creative process that i was creating and um and because of that i thought the architect was the you know the profession of an architect was a great sort of vehicle to to kind of tell a story about an idea that I've noticed in my own life, which is, you know, I, you, as a writer, as an artist, you, you work so hard and you're so focused on, on uh, developing your craft, on creating this life that you want to live. And that oftentimes you, you sort of let the other parts of life sort of drift by. Uh, you forget to enjoy the moment you're in. And so I thought that, you know, this, this architect who created this, this perfect design, which is hidden in the woods, which no one else will ever see. Mm. I think it sort of symbolizes the fact that, you know, as maybe not even an artist, but a person in any profession in life or with any aspirations in life, uh, you know, you can, you can end up at the end of your life with everything you ever dreamed of achieving but at what cost does it take to get there? In the mm. end, are you alone? Which I think is uh, obviously how that story concludes, not to ruin the ending for anybody, but in right. the end, yeah, um, he finds you know the house is empty. He has his perfect design, but there's nothing inside. He's lost his family and he's at the end of his life and he realizes he's got this perfect design. He's, he's a successful architect. He's achieved everything he ever wanted in his life. But 
the cabin is empty. And I think that sort of, you know, symbolizes the fact that his, his soul is empty. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting twist. And in, in, in many, uh, maybe all great stories have that twist, that, that, that shifting in momentum where you realize that you thought it was going one place, but it's going somewhere else instead. And, and that makes sense. It's not, you don't feel cheap. Like some people try to do that and it feels like a cheat. You're sort of like, wait, it was I, mm-hmm. my best, my, my favorite example of this is, uh, is when in Stephen King's it, like near the end, you learn that it, like it, the, the monster is an alien and you're sort of like, oh, it was, huh? Like that makes sense. But that's like, that's a, it's a lousy yeah. twist, but, uh, I really thought that you know the I, I thought the architect, the titular character, was going to uh, was going to to find the thing, and and it made perfect sense that that the thing that he had gotten that he'd been seeking after um, is something that he had already built, and and that was it. It was it was it was very sad um, and and solitary, but also self sufficient. Yeah, and I think you know I, I mean one. Uh, huge similarity between architecture and writing, which I tried to incorporate into the story, was that you know, when, you, when you write a story, uh, when you describe a room, for example, you don't give the reader the dimensions of the room. You tell them how the room feels, you know, a lofty ceiling or an airy space or something like that. And I think for architecture as well, you're trying to create a feeling as people move through a space. And I think that's what good art does is it creates feelings, not necessarily transmitting information. Um, and I, so as the architect has that conversation with the waitress and he's asking her all these questions about uh, her grandparents' home in, in Oklahoma, and the architect is asking, like, what was the house made of? Was it, how many stories was it? Was there a pitch roof? And the waitress, Diane, had trouble recalling the specifics of the house. But she could always recall a memory of the other people, like, you know, the way her grandfather used to sit in the living room, the way her grandmother, uh, you know, used to watch her game shows, you know. And so it's you realize that it's it's the feelings that a space creates or a story or anything. It's, it's the feelings that we remember, mm. not the details. And so for the architect who tried to so perfectly construct his life or a space, he kind of realizes that in the end, his perfect design didn't exist. Yeah. Mm. It was only the feelings that Diane had, which she can only remember the house based on the feelings it had created. Yeah. And, and then, I mean, the other thing that jumped out at me was how he can, that, that moment is so precious as well. The, the conversation he has, because you see that like he is so invested, his work has so taken over his life that this is literally the only way that he can relate to other people is talking about his work um which yeah. is and and yeah it, it, it's it's a very sad uh but but not i mean it's it it's not it's not a depressing story it's a sad story uh and a good sad story i think is not depressing it's it's uplifting and educational so another story i wanted to talk about was baby go boom <laughs> which is just a. Uh, a really extraordinary premise uh, for a story. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, so I think as I write more, I, I'm trying to gravitate away from just writing about war. I think uh, 
I'm trying to be more creative, and as part of that creative process, uh, one of my inspirations has been Twilight Zone. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just, you know, going through episodes of the old Twilight Zone series, you know, from the 1960s, I love how there's always the twist in the end, which has some sort of moral, uh, some moral uh, message they're trying to convey through the story. And uh, so I, I uh, had this idea, watching, of course, world events play out, of uh, the fact that maybe in some weird future, North Korea would offer a tourism adventure to uh, people around the world who go witness a nuclear bomb exploding. Oh, wow. And so I tell the story through the smaller story of a, of a couple who go to North Korea hoping to resuscitate their stagnant marriage by going and watching this nuclear explosion go off. And the backstory to their, their marriage is that on the night they met when they were in university, they got drunk and they ran around the city and the man realized he loved the woman as they stood on the Lake Michigan shore and watched the sunrise. Oh, wow. And, and at the end of the story, and as they watch the sunrise, he squeezes her hand and she squeezes his back. And that's sort of the, the moment that he realizes he's in love and she loves him back. At the end of the story, they, they watch the nuclear explosion and the fireball rising and he squeezes her hand and the story ends with him waiting for her to squeeze his back. So you don't know if she mm. has fallen in love with him again or not. But I think, you know, that the, the symbolism there is that, you know, a nuclear explosion is the rising of a man-made sun. And mm -hmm. so it was an attempt to recreate sort of the magic of falling in love, uh, to recreate it through this experience, through this, this journey together, uh, to recreate something that happened organically, which is what true love is, and you can't plan on it. Um, so it was... Right sort of the vessel for trying to show how um, this couple was doing what they could to recreate the magic of, of falling in love. And then, you know, along the way, telling this sort of dystopian story about tourists from around the world flocking North Korea to watch nuclear bombs explode. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's a, 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 a truly um, uh, inspired uh, story. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, the last story I wanted to talk about is the story of, I believe the word is uh, eponymous, Snowblind. Um, and it's the first story in the collection, is that correct? Correct, yeah. It's, a, you know, it's one of those things where I read it and I was like, okay, this is going to be a real collection of fiction. I'm going to sit down and, and read it now. You know, you sit down with a book and you've got a beer. Uh, it, it for me, uh, you know, I was by the fireplace and and I was thinking like I'm probably going to do something after this story. Um, and I read the story and I was drinking the beer and I was like, I'm going to stay here. I might have another beer because I got more stories to read. So uh, you, the setting for this story is Nepal, uh, right. and it's about a man who is he's looking for love essentially. He has he too. Um, needs love in his life and then what he finds is really extraordinary he finds it he does yeah it's i think um you know it's a little bit of 
real life experience woven into the story. And when I left the military, I went on a few month long walkabout in the Himalayas. And I, wow. you know, I, I remember as I wandered through the Himalayas and I climbed some mountains and I just remember thinking like, when, when is the right time to go home? When am I ready to go back and sort of rejoin the life that I should be living? And so I think that's how we meet this character who, in the story, uh, you never know the main character's name, nor do you know the name of the woman uh, with whom he falls in love. So you meet this man as he's wandering through the Himalayas, and he shows up in this little village called Chikung. And uh, one night in the lodge, he meets a young woman, and he starts up a conversation with her and realizes that she is a mountain climber, and that she just came down from a mountain, and her fiancé, Tommy, had died while they were climbing the mountain. And so, you know, there's basically you have these two sort of lost souls randomly encountering each other mm. uh, in the Himalayas. She is not ready to go home, obviously, to deal with the reality of losing her fiancé, and so she's sort of lingering in the mountains, uh, as is our, our main character, our protagonist. And they fall in love over this span of a few days of climbing and exploring the Himalayas together. And uh, she has one thing to do before she can go back home, she says, which is to go back up to her tent beneath the mountain, which she, she just left there with all her things, with her, and along with her fiancé's things. She has to go get uh, her fiancé's journal. And uh, so mm. in the end of the story, near the end of the story, the man and this woman say that they're ready to leave the mountains together. They're ready to go home. They found love. They found something that can, that can kind of allow them to go back to the world they left. And uh, they go together. They get Tommy, the dead fiance's journal, and they go back. We we got it. We can't tell people about this. This is we we we, we got, we've got to put some kind of cliffhanger. They they fall in love in the mountains, and but they have one more thing to do because that's like that's like that that is the bomb twist there where you read that and you're just like wait a second. Yeah, that's that's a terrific story. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, you never know in the end. That's why I think, you know, I actually got some great advice from my wife when I wrote that story because originally I wrote the story with a very concrete, definitive ending where you know exactly what happened. But then I rewrote it so that you don't know what happened. You, you have no definite conclusion to the story. And you could interpret the ending to mean many different things. Which I think, you know, in my mind, I have an idea of how the story, what actually happens, but I do leave it to the reader to, to interpret it in his or her own, her own way. It's it's extraordinary. That's a great piece of fiction right there. So if your agenda in writing this uh, in the beginning was to create that, then you have accomplished your agenda. I'm sure now it's just pleasurable to write, um, but that's that's a great piece of fiction, and that'll that'll be in the great that'll be on the greatest hits album, I'm sure. Snowblind. Um, is there the, the, the last question I have uh, before I let you go is um, I was just wondering if, uh, you know, what you would say to people, what you would want people to know um, picking Snowblind up. Like what should be in there if, if you can frame this reading for people? What's the question they should be asking themselves? Well, I think, you know, first off, it is 
not just a myopic book about about war. I think as a somebody who's a war correspondent, it's a little easy to just think that uh, your first debut fiction is just going to be about war. But it's, I think it's, it's about people who are, like you said, they're 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 searching for 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 a way to go back to something to a place where they they were happy. And I think, you know, in my own life, I, you know, I was a pilot and then I became a war correspondent and I drifted around the world, traveling to wars, looking for meaning, uh, both in my life and in the things I've seen. And I think, you know, along the way, I've met so many people who are similarly searching for things in their life. So I think, you know, that if there is a unifying theme to the story, it is, it is you know, people in search of, of a way to, to get home. And what is home? You know, home isn't a location. It's a, it's, a, it's a state of mind. And each story, I believe, is is a lesson in that. Mm. Um, That's a great place to end. Snowblind, a book <laughs> for seekers. And uh, <laughs> thanks for writing it. It's, uh, it's terrific. Well, I appreciate all the support and... Uh, yeah, it's it's hopefully the first of, of many more more books to come. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you know you obviously you've served in the military and you've been a writer who's uh, traveled to war zones as a witness, not a participant in combat as well. So I think you know I, there's a lot of of uh, of you know there's a lot of life stories that you pick up both as a participant and a witness to war, and I think that. Fiction is, is a great way to, to tell all those stories. And so I'm grateful that uh, I finally pulled the trigger. No <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. But again, thank you, because the stuff that you're writing is worth reading. Uh, and there, there are a lot of people out there, I've been guilty of this myself, who, who write indulgently, um, self-indulgently, and, and every story doesn't need to see the light of day. Um, but, but this is what, what you're doing is, is really good stuff. And, uh, it's a real pleasure, uh, to, to, to be able to read it. You know, so many, so many books I'll pick up out of obligation, um, or, you know, because it's on some list and people say you want to read it and then you read it and you're like, I, I, I got cheated, you know, <laughs> like give me my time back. Uh, but, but this is, it's really exciting to me that you are writing more stuff because it means there's going to be more good books to read and I look forward to them. Well, I appreciate that. It means a lot. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, check out Nolan's book, Snowblind, available on Amazon for $2.99 at the moment. Although my feeling is that there will be uh, hardcovers or at some point, um, you know, uh, my guess is that a major publishing house will pick this up and put it into print um, once they figure out that, you know, once once somebody actually, uh, you know, once they read it, they will see that it is good. And then you'll get one of those Carl Marlantes type situations where, you know, like like that's what he did with Matterhorn. You know, he actually he self published it. Somebody read it and was like, oh, this is a good a good book. You know, why did the agents not bring it to us? Meanwhile, every agent has like five letters from Marlante saying, check out this book. You'll like it. It's good. Um, right. That'll, so well, that'll think, happen. Yeah. I mean, in, in defense of self-publishing, especially as a writer who's trying to 
on his craft is that it allows you to keep writing. I think it'd be really easy to have this manuscript sitting on my hard drive, like I said earlier, like a telltale heart beating on my hard drive <laughs> for years, and to not do anything with it. But at least by self-publishing, I, mean, I guess in some ways it feels like a defeat because I'm not trying to get it out there to a mainstream publisher. But it also allows me to you know, put this behind me and keep writing and keep producing new work, which I think is the most important thing for a writer is to keep writing and to not be stuck on the past and something I wrote years ago and I'm trying to get published. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in, in some ways it is very liberating to just get it out there and to be able to move on to hopefully bigger and better things. Although this book, I have to say is something I'm very proud of after all the work that I put into it. And, uh, yeah, I, it, it's terrifying to publish fiction. I think I, it's a terror I never felt as a, as a journalist. Because I feel like fiction is definitely looking a lot deeper into who you are mm. than anything I ever wrote with nonfiction. So uh, it was a big step, and I'm I'm really excited to have it finally be out there. Well, it it it's inspiring to see it, and as I told you, I will be considering uh, self publishing stuff myself after uh, I finish getting you know rejection letters from uh, the, the last <laughs> two or three agents who have yet to reject me. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's always a couple more. Right, right. Oh, a new agent just entered the ring. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Whenever the sun's shining, you can expect a nice rejection letter to ruin your right. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Adrian.